the problem with an emergency fund is that when you don't have an emergency for say 10 years and you have this huge pool of money just sloshing around it becomes very easy to dip into that and the thing with a crisis like COVID-19 is that uh, until it actually happens you never know when it's going to hit and it can very much be just this fantastical faraway idea which some people talk about and again if you're a country which is faced with immediate socio-economic challenges and don't have a lot of money at your disposal having an emergency emergency fund on standby is, is extremely tempting. Happy Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Brentes Foundation podcast. This is the place where we talk about some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. And today's no exception. Joining us is Richard Morrow, who is a researcher at the Brentes Foundation. Coming to you from the bright and sunny streets of Accra, Ghana, I'm your host, Marie Noel, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So today is a good day, and as with all good days, we will be sharing a recent publication by one of our very own. It actually came out last year, but I wanted to talk about it because it highlights some of the bigger topics or events that have happened to us on the continent, but even the world at large in the past year. So yes, you guessed it right, the COVID-19 crisis. All right. So the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted Africa's perennial development and governance challenges from strained healthcare systems to fragile and commodity dependent economies. The crisis has thrown the continent into a recession for the first time in a quarter of a century and created widespread economic upheaval. COVID-19 is just one of many crises in which Africa and the world will face over the coming years from climate change to population growth and increasing competition over scarce resources. The next crisis is coming and it's imperative that African governments are prepared if they wish to mitigate large-scale damage. The COVID-19 crisis should therefore be seen as an opportunity to learn from the policy missteps of the past and better prepare for the future. As this paper will illustrate, African governments and policymakers can achieve this by focusing their attention around five key areas, namely preparation, context, robustness, collaboration, and leadership. So this is an excerpt from the paper we're about to talk about, and joining me to do exactly that is Richard. So Richard, it's good to have you on here. Welcome. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Marina Wall. I am doing fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. So you just came back from Malawi. How are things on that side of the planet? Yes, I uh, got back uh, just under a week ago. Um, things were good. It was uh, quite an exciting trip. A lot to see, a lot to do. And uh, was only there for about a week. So itching to get back. And uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good to hear. All right. So switching over to the topic of the day. So you wrote last year um, that Africa's experience with COVID-19 ultimately serves as a watershed moment and how the continent, its government and institutions choose to prepare for future crises. I thought this was pretty mm-hmm. profound. Can you share some of those insights um, that inform this statement? I, what are those correct measures that need to be in place to mitigate potential threats? Sure, absolutely. So I think just going back a, a step, it, COVID-19 serves as a watershed moment for, for the entire global community. Uh, Africa, by no means, is one that should be singled out. Uh, as we saw across the world, 
COVID-19 has, has wreaked havoc uh, across economies and has, you know, ruined livelihoods of, of millions of people. So Africa certainly can, can do a lot more, but it's by no means uh, one that should be singled out. Looking at Africa in particular, there's, there are a number of issues which came to the forefront uh, during COVID-19. And the pandemic really, it really amplified many of the continent's perennial challenges. Um, when you think about Africa, you typically envision a continent which is understaffed when it comes to skills and expertise. It, it lacks in the areas of infrastructure, particularly healthcare. And there really is a, a shortage when it comes to capital to, to assist with crises. And all of those uh, really were amplified during this most recent crisis. Yeah. So when looking at it and thinking, well, how can Africa better perform when the next crisis comes around? It really comes down to what I believe to be five main areas or five mm -hmm. main buckets. And these start off with, with preparation. Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. fair to say that... Africa as a continent needs to be better prepared when thinking about the next crisis. Yeah. And of course, that's, that's quite a difficult task because we don't know what the next crisis will be and we don't know when it can hit the continent and the severity yeah. of it. But nonetheless, there need to be certain measures in place to ensure that when it does happen, and that's the operative word here, when, not if, <laughs> yeah. that uh, the continent is, is prepared. Uh, and that goes for it being financially prepared. It means having the right institutions in place that can address these crises when they, uh, when they arise. Uh, and just to ensure that it's not slow off, off the mark to actually get its act together and address these issues. That then leads to the next bucket, which is that of context. Uh, as I mentioned, we don't know what the next crisis will be. Right. Uh, and so that obviously makes things difficult, whereby you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, i.e. in the healthcare, and then the next crisis happens to be one surrounding climate, you know, <laughs> Africa prone to drought and flooding. So you really want to be able to address these crises as they come and within the correct context. Uh, and so that means not having a one-size-fits-all solution or indeed a one-size-fits-all approach, but rather understanding what the crisis is, who it affects, how it affects them, and what are the appropriate measures that can actually be deployed to, to mitigate the crisis. The third main bucket is that of robustness. So again, I've already touched on this, but making sure that the systems are in place so that when a crisis does hit, that the impact isn't as severe as it otherwise could be. So this really has to do with creating resilience uh, from a, a financial standpoint, making sure that there are adequate financial reserves to ensure that support can be delivered. Yeah. It means making sure that African economies can sustain these crises by supplying themselves with their own resources uh, and products. One of the things we saw with this crisis is that when all these various economies went into lockdown and, and shut themselves off from the rest of the world, a number of countries, many of which were in Africa, who rely on importing key, key products and materials were very much left out in the cold because they simply couldn't access these markets anymore. So going ahead, there certainly is a need for a, a means of import uh, substitution and ensuring that some of the key products and materials can be produced and sourced locally. Uh, on the African continent. Fourth uh, is, the, is the need for collaboration. 
what, what we've seen with this crisis is that it's too big for any one country or indeed one continent to manage in and of itself. We, we certainly need continents to, to, to work together uh, amongst those, those countries within them, but also between organizations at, at a multilateral level. Right. Um, this, is, this is quite pertinent because at the same time, we saw during the crisis, crisis a lot of criticism being labeled against multilateral organizations. Uh, the WHO is one that comes to mind. And one thing is clear is that in the context of Africa, no one country can manage a crisis like, like COVID alone. And so there certainly is a need to, to pull resources together, to share expertise uh, and skills, and to really ensure that there are these, these larger forces at play that can help countries of all shapes and sizes to actually get through these crises. Uh, one of the fortunate things about Africa is that it's comprised of you know, 55 countries. And so you really have a lot of uh, influence and power by collaborating at a multilateral level, say with the African Union. And we certainly did see the Africa CDC play quite an important role when it came to COVID-19, disseminating information, working with governments to secure the relevant PPE, PCR tests. And now with, with the vaccine rollout, we see them playing an important role as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's very important moving forward that this level of collaboration continues, but more importantly, that it actually becomes more interwoven in how governments uh, interact and, and respond to crises. And then lastly, and this is the, the fifth bucket, it's that of leadership. Um, it, it goes without saying that in any crisis, leadership, proper leadership uh, is, is invaluable. Right. Um, throughout, we've seen this throughout history, not just on the African continent, but how lead, leaders can successfully navigate a crisis and the difference that, that leadership makes. On the African continent, we've, we've seen leadership take on different forms. We've seen some governments where the, the virus was completely dismissed and the, the leadership in those respective countries chose to carry on with business as usual. And unfortunately, those countries have had to bear, bear quite a severe brunt. You saw other countries where the leadership was quite, quite committed towards resolving the issue, entering into lockdowns, implementing measures which were aimed at curbing the spread of the virus. And so it goes without saying that in any future crisis, you need leaders who are able to admit that there is a crisis, to acknowledge what the crisis is, but perhaps most importantly, implement the the necessary protocols and measures which are going to serve in the best interests for their people and ultimately their country. So those are the the five main buckets. Um, A lot can obviously be discussed around each one, and I'm sure uh, additional ones can be can be introduced. But as I say, those are very much the, the main ones. Yeah, no, and you couldn't have said it any better, especially your point on leadership. I mean, we've, we've sort of seen the cost um, and benefit of that across the world and how it's played out very differently in different places. So thanks so much for sharing that. And I'm not going to talk about all of them because I also want people to read the paper, um, but sort of picking some of these things, one of the first things you talked about was, you know, preparation and how important that is. So if we're thinking about the African continent, right, all these 54, 55, depending on which side you lie, um, number of countries, how do we prepare for a crisis 
of this sort or of the kind that we don't know um, of yet? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it, it certainly serves as, as the heart of this paper is, is that preparation is key. But obviously, in a continent like Africa, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, you know, Africa is a continent which isn't necessarily uh, blessed when it comes to a wealth of financial reserves, uh, something which is very important when it comes to, to offsetting a crisis such as this. Yeah. And obviously, yeah. as I alluded to earlier, is that it's made all the more difficult when you don't actually know what the next crisis is. Yeah. So you're sort of going into this blind. Although having said that, we are, we do have a good understanding of what the future crises may entail, whether they are another health pandemic, whether they are related to climate change. We do have some sort of an understanding, which, which certainly helps in this regard. I think within this, you could, you could really break it down into three main areas. And again, I'm sure there are many more, but these are the three main ones which which stood out to me and I think can actually be be actioned by individual countries uh, and uh, across the continent, more large at a multinational level. And I think the first one is to do with the appropriate risk management systems. Uh, What we saw in a number of developed countries is that when the virus first started to make an appearance, and I'll use Europe as an example, we saw a number of these countries introduce uh, track and trace systems. Yeah. And essentially what these were aimed at was to get a better understanding of where the virus is in the country geographically, who has it, where have they been, and where is it likely to to crop up next in the country. And this was all done through sophisticated track and trace systems, namely mobile phone apps, which alerted you to when you had come into contact with someone that had the virus, um, as well as systems in place that could help educate you on what to do if you feel as though you you've may, maybe contracted the virus. And so these are very, although they don't necessarily do a, a complete job at stopping the spread of the virus, they certainly are good measures aimed at mitigating the spread. And so in Africa, this is very difficult because you have a lot of migration that takes place on a quote-unquote unofficial basis. So yeah. people are moving yeah. across borders. They're not necessarily going through the traditional uh, uh, border crossing measures where they're having their passport stamped, they're in the context of COVID, they're having their temperatures uh, taken and they're being screened as they come and go. You know, you very much have people crossing over borders on a daily basis. Think about South Africa and Zimbabwe at Baybridge. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes very difficult to actually measure and track who's coming and who's going and, and who maybe has the virus and who's spreading it. Again, people are typically crossing in, in large droves. And so you know, the virus can spread very easily in those settings. Yeah. So it's about not necessarily changing the way people travel, but putting in place measures that can properly track uh, their movements and ensure that we know what's going on. Because mm-hmm. again, the more data you have, the better informed decisions you can make. Mm-hmm. So it's really about having these, these systems in place. Uh, a, second, a second key bucket is one of having having a fund, an emergency fund uh, ready for when crises such as this happen. And this is, this is I, I, I acknowledge, quite a difficult one given the financial constraints that many African countries face. Yeah. Uh, how, yeah. do you, how do you reconcile the, the challenges of today with perceived threat of tomorrow? How do you convince the government to say, we're cash-strapped, 
but we're going to put aside money for a crisis that we don't know what it is, what it looks like, and if it will ever occur. Right, yeah. And so, I, yeah, I acknowledge that that's quite difficult, but nonetheless, it's very important because when crises such as these do happen, having a cash fund available to support uh, the individuals in the country, whether it be through uh, support funds, whether it be supporting businesses, whether it be trying to just keep the economy going um, so that a semblance of normality can be maintained, that, that's an extremely important thing to do. And to some extent, it has already been done on the continent, but it hasn't been executed to the best of its ability. Mm. And yeah. over, over here, I, you know, I can highlight the uh, excess crude account in Nigeria, which essentially is a fund which had been established for this very purpose. Uh, you know, having money available, readily available during times of crisis. And so what the Nigerian government had historically done is that they would take uh, a certain percentage of the profits from their, their oil industry, from their oil exports, and they basically put it in a fund and save it for a rainy day. In 2008, the fund had amassed, I believe, $22 billion. And last year in 2020, when the crisis hit and they opened up the piggy bank, they saw that it was only left with 72. I want to say 72.5 million dollars. Of course, that 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 that's a dramatic drop uh, in in funds, and that's largely, not entirely, but largely due to to corrupt activity, money being used for political campaigning, being used to bail out other departments and sectors, and so essentially, you had in principle a good idea, a good concept, but because it simply wasn't maintained properly it became a shadow of its former self. And although $72 million is to, to you and I a nice sum of money yeah. during the time yeah. of crisis in a country like Nigeria, it, it very much amounts to, um, to nothing at all, really. Mm -hmm. So it's about ensuring that A, there are the systems in place, but B, that they're actually managed and maintained more, more properly and adequately. And over here, you could have some systems such as a private sector auditing firm uh, making sure that the funds are funds are are there and that the books aren't being cooked and that it actually is being uh, managed and maintained according to good governance principles. No, that's a really then, important point. Um, and quickly on that, because when I was reading it, I was just like, hmm, this is very interesting because it comes back to this idea that right in a lot of instances, most people, I guess, most governments know what to do. <laughs> hmm. The how to do it or to maintain it seems to be the issue. So if we're thinking of a place like Nigeria or really wherever else on the continent, it's how do we ensure that there's transparency and there's accountability around some of these things? Like, you know, what does that require? Um, who needs to be holding these folks accountable, especially when you know a lot of the powerful people with vested interests are sort of the ones that are taking, uh, not making it work as it should. Um, it's always one of the questions that I think about often. And one thing that came to mind really, and I think a couple of other countries are maybe doing this, having like some sort of an independent board um, and having other organizations that audit them. But I imagine you know, making that work um, in a place like Nigeria will not be a walk in the park. Mm, mm. Absolutely. And, and as I said earlier, a lot of these things are easier said than done. Uh, we, we have an idea of what the solution is. It's yeah. just a case of how do we actually implement it? And, and that's very much one of the key challenges that faces Africa as a continent is the ability to actually execute and implement accordingly. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a fund such as the ECA, 
in theory, it, it, it was good. Yeah. And in the yeah. early years, it certainly served a purpose and, and was well managed. But the problem with an emergency fund, I imagine, is that when you don't have an emergency for, <laughs> say, 10 years and you have this huge pool of money just sloshing around, it becomes very easy to dip into that. Yeah. And then once you yeah. do that, it sets a precedent. And the thing with a crisis like COVID-19 is that although there were those who were saying that it's coming and that a pandemic is inevitable, uh, until it actually happens, you never know when it's going to hit. And it can very much be just this fantastical, faraway idea, which some people talk about. And again, if you're a country which is faced with immediate socioeconomic challenges and, you know, the fiscus is very stretched and you don't have a lot of money at your disposal, having an emergency fund on standby is, is extremely tempting. And, you know, Nigeria is a case in point and how that's been, been used for all the wrong reasons. And that, you know, Murphy's Law, when the time of crisis actually does arise, uh, it's, it's, it's not really as effective as it could have been. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that, that sort of is, is a very interesting and good segue, I think, into the third and final point when it comes to preparation. And that's, it's just investing in future-proofing initiatives. Um, you know, in Africa, as I say, it's very easy to, to sit here and say, oh, well, government should invest in X or they should invest in Y because 10, 20, 30 years from now, these are going to be the issues of the day. And these are very much conversations that we're having with, with key individuals and in governments and it's conversations they're having in and amongst themselves. But it's really a case of using this as a springboard to say, okay, when it comes to climate change, we need to make sure that our farmers are using climate resilient crops yeah. uh, or seed. We need to make sure that our farmers are using best practices so as to mitigate uh, reduced yields during, during seasons of drought or, or indeed flooding. It means looking at crop alternatives, which are themselves more resilient to drought and flooding. And so it's really about actioning and implementing on these, on these discussions, which up until now have been very academic in nature. You know, there's no shortage of, of scientific evidence out there which points to the need for climate resilient seeds. Yeah. And a lot of work is being done in this, but I feel as though if we are to avoid sort of large scale disaster, and I'm using climate change just as one example, mm -hmm. We need to actually make sure that we, we commit to these future-proofing initiatives and that we, we make sure that we're as best prepared as we possibly can be for when the next crisis uh, hits. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think uh, one point you, you, know, you mentioned, and I found particularly interesting, excuse me, and this is moving the conversation further along, um, so when you talked about, you know, intensifying diversification, I think my words, not yours, um, and you wrote, I want to find this quickly, because uh, I thought it was so interesting, yeah, so the clarion call for economic diversification across Africa has been sounding for years, governments need to use the COVID-19 crisis as a catalyst in their economic diversification effort. I thought that was really important because, you know, here at the foundation, that's one of the things we often talk about when we're talking about economic growth, diversifying African economies. So can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, why we need to diversify and what that could look like on the African continent, especially when we think about even things like AFTA? Mm, sure, absolutely. So 
you know, Africa as a continent is, is fortunately blessed with, with a wealth of, of natural resources, as we all know. And, and those natural resources have very much been the driving force behind the continent's economy to date. The challenge in that, however, is that many of these natural resources are, are highly susceptible to external shocks. Yeah. And again, the COVID-19 pandemic illustrates that perfectly, where when many of the uh, economies around the world, which are heavily focused around manufacturing, take India and China, for example, when they closed their borders and went into lockdown, we, or I say we, African countries found it very difficult to export their, their commodities to these countries because they simply were closed for business. And so Africa was left in a huge, a huge, a hugely difficult situation whereby they simply couldn't sell their, their key commodities, which in turn meant that their foreign uh, reserves became depleted, which means that the economies in, in general just, just took a huge knock. And so when speaking about diversification, it's not so much about swapping one out with the other. So it's not necessarily about swapping oil out with 4IR. It's not necessarily about swapping out agriculture with um, automotive manufacturing. You know, these, these key industries are very much woven into the fabric and DNA of these countries. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't simply replace them overnight for, for more than one reason. Um, you know, people depend on these uh, people's livelihoods have been built on these. It's what they know. It's what they've been doing for generations. And so it's going to take a lot, a lot of work and a lot of time to eventually replace these industries. Mm -hmm. But what countries can do is begin looking at ways in which they can increase their value add. So as I mentioned, many African economies are dependent on exporting commodities in their quote unquote raw form. Yeah. So very little, very little value add to it. So for example, if I take a country like Malawi, for example, they are typically harvesting a lot of tobacco and tea, but then they're just exporting it as is. They're not doing any value add where they're actually producing, for example, tea bags, yeah. or they're actually producing um, American tobacco cigarettes, uh, both of which can add considerable value add onto their exports and in turn increase what they're actually getting on the market. So it's looking at countries where opportunities such as this lie and where it can actually be, be actioned and, and driven home. So it's about creating new, new pockets uh, in the economy, ones which require more investment, ones which typically are more technology driven, yeah. uh, ones which can ultimately create more jobs, but perhaps most importantly, ones which can strengthen the economy and make it more resilient. Because as I say, when a crisis like this hits, you don't want to be left in a situation where your one key commodity, let's take oil, for example, it's been serving you well up until this point, but suddenly now, you know, people are actually paying you to keep and hold on to your oil because it's right, not worth yeah. anything at that point in time. So it's really about improving the resilience of these economies. And it's not necessarily going to be a silver bullet. Uh, I, I don't pretend that diversification makes you immune to, to external shocks and crises, but it certainly goes a long way in, in protecting you and, and doing as good a job as possible and ensuring that your economy and ultimately your people don't uh, suffer extremely at the hands of whatever crisis it may be. Right, and it, it's, you know, it's not that it's a silver bullet, but you know, it gives you a much better chance 
um, your economy sort of surviving um, than when it's an undiversified economy. Um, thanks so much for that. And I think lastly, before we go, one thing I wanted to touch on was you spoke about leadership even in your intro, but also in the paper, which is one of the things that, you know, we often talk about, and even our chairman, President Basanjo has mentioned several times, right, the importance of leadership on the continent, even now more so in a time of crisis. And I just wanted to get your um, thoughts. So you wrote this paper last year, um, late last year, I guess so far, um, thinking through up until now, um, how would you say that Africa's leadership has shown up in this time of crisis, or maybe not shown up? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's it, it's a great question, and it's obviously a difficult one to answer because you know you would need to to look at each individual country and, and how their respective leaders have acted um, versus just saying you know the leadership full stop. Yeah, I think so. So, firstly, I think. COVID-19 has been a crisis of leadership the world over. And we've seen countries that, you know, have historically been lauded for, for their leadership. We've seen them really struggle during times, during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I think, you know, the US under, President, under former President Donald Trump is, is an example of that. Uh, even in the UK, uh, they, they've, they've struggled quite heavily. There's been a lot of criticism labeled against uh, Boris Johnson and his government. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's repeated itself across the world with a handful of exceptions. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult, again, looking at Africa to say, okay, well, they've performed well, they've performed uh, subpar, they could have done better here, they could have done better there. I think generally speaking, there, there certainly are cases on the continent where there has been questionable leadership and things have been uh, handled poorly. Uh, I think uh, Tanzania is a good example where COVID-19 uh, was very much dismissed from the uh, government there and senior leaders. They very much said it didn't exist and that they wanted to promote uh, business as usual. Mm -hmm. You have places like Zimbabwe where COVID-19 was very much used as a guise for uh, expanding upon the, the nefarious and corrupt activities which take place in that country. It was very much used as a tool or mechanism for further strengthening the government's uh, totalitarian grip on society. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in some instances, it, 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 it brought about a lot, of, a lot of trouble for the continent, I'd say that. And, and the leaders in those contexts were very much using it for all the wrong reasons. And it was a, a clear sign of poor leadership. Right. Having said that, I think there are equally on the reverse side of the coin, examples where leaders approach this with the, the correct intent. Uh, you know, here in South Africa, as much as criticisms have been labeled against how the government has managed uh, the, the coronavirus crisis and, and issues of corruption around uh, PPE procurement and so on, I think we, we did a good job in entering into a lockdown of very early on. Yeah. Um, you know, the same cannot be said for, for a number of other countries. Um, but again, I believe that was, that was the correct decision. You have in countries in Northwest Africa, for example, uh, and in particular the Francophone countries where they have previously dealt with Ebola. So I'm thinking about Sierra Leone, uh, Liberia mm -hmm. uh, in particular. 
these are countries where because of their past experience with Ebola and their handling of, of, of those, those crises, they were much better prepared when it came to COVID-19. You know, they, although COVID-19 and Ebola are, are, very, are completely different, um, they very much had that lived experience of this is what a serious health crisis can do. Yeah. Uh, and this is what we need to do. And, you know, that, 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 that resonates with, with everyone in society from the president right down to the average bystander on the street. You know, they understand that if a government says stay at home and don't go out after 7 p.m., it's probably for good reason. <laughs> and so in these countries, in these countries, you, you had very effective leadership when it comes to curtailing the spread of COVID-19 mm-hmm. and introducing measures which were abided by by the citizenry. And again, that comes down to the lived experience of, of Ebola and previous uh, health crises. And I guess that really does speak to the crux of the paper about how this is a watershed moment. Up until now, save for those, those few exceptions, i.e. Liberia and Sierra Leone, Africa hadn't really dealt with a health crisis of this magnitude. And so they didn't really have that lived experience. Sure, you could make the argument that in South Africa, there was the HIV AIDS crisis and in various other parts of the, of the continent, the same thing. But I think, I think this, is, this is very different in that sense. And, and the hope is that governments look at this, this crisis and they say, this is what it was, this is what went wrong, and this is what we can try and do going forward to, to mitigate the same, the same impact and the same mistakes. Yeah. And that's not to say they're going to get it right. Uh, you know, this is very much, uh, it's an art and a science. And we've seen across the world how very developed countries have struggled themselves. So, but, but, but the, the key thing here is to at least make the effort to, to improve. Yeah. And with this experience behind us going forward, hopefully we can all look back on it and say, this is what happened. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. And, you know, the best we can do is, is learn, from, learn from our mistakes and what didn't work and what did and implement accordingly moving forward. Yeah, no, certainly. You make a good point about that. And I think West Africa really did quite well for, you know, some of the reasons that you mentioned. And even when I think about a country like Ghana, for instance, Ghana was also you know, lauded for, you know, some of the uh, decisions and activities around COVID-19 mm. locking down. So also being the first to come out of lockdown for reasons of preserving livelihoods, because when we look at, you know, the structure of the economy and the nature of things, you realize that <laughs> you have something has to give somewhere and co- taking a completely different approach in terms of public health, educating people. And thankfully, it worked out quite well. And I think Ghana is also one of those places that even though you know, was sort of on the lucky side of not having Ebola cases. It was the hub for a lot of these sort of big health organizations working through to the other regions. So our healthcare systems did have some experience and some exposure. And I think that also helped as well. So that sort of not necessarily institutional memory, but on some version institutional memory as well was quite helpful. So yeah, you definitely make a good point in that. But anyway, yes, I purposefully did not bring up every point in the paper because as I said earlier, I do want people to actually go read this paper. So please do visit uh, the brentusfoundation.org and under publications, you will find a copy of Richard's paper or actually 
We could put a link in the description box, so we will do that. Check there first. Um, but Richard, thanks again for putting this paper together and making time to speak to me about it. Um, it really was very insightful, and I'm glad that you did this. Thank you so much, Marina Wall. I really enjoyed it. Definitely. But before you go, you thought that was the end, but not really. So I thought we could play a very, very short game of word association, but rapid fast style. I don't know if you've played that before. Have you? Uh, I've done uh, something, I guess, similar in the form yeah. of quickfire questions. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, actually, this I just say a word and you basically say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, don't worry, it's nothing risky, so you'll be fine. Um, but it has to be <laughs> quick. Literally the first thought. Are you ready? Uh, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Malawi. Robustness. Continental free trade. Kenya. South Africa. Society. Leadership. Tough. Debt. Escapable. Hmm. African cities. Growing. Migration. Difficult. 2050. Exciting. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, Richard, thanks so much. It was a pleasure having you on here. Uh, thanks, Marina. Well, it was great to be on. Okay, so do check out the description box for a link to download the paper or visit our website to find it. If you've been here before, thank you so much for tuning in again. Um, if it's your first time joining us, welcome, welcome. We hope you do stick around and I hope you enjoyed this chat especially. Um, do check out our other episodes and I'm sure you love them too. And as always, uh, please be sure to download and share with others in your network. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure sharing this time with you all. And until next week, stay well and stay safe.